0: Welcome to the Shadows of Noir podcast, a place for movie fans to discover, learn, and discuss all things film noir. My name is Dan, and I am a classic film fanatic with a longtime passion for the complex world of film noir. I'll be your main guide for this show and our accompanying website that you can find online at ShadowsOfNoir.com. Hello again, everybody, and welcome to episode four. Today we are talking all about film noir and World War II and the intersection between those two. So we left off last episode when we talked about The Maltese Falcon. and earlier episodes, when we were talking about the birth of film noir. We've really gone into the 1940-1941 stretch and done some film analysis on one of the most important films in terms of kickstarting the classic era of film noir. And today, we wanted to kind of continue on that path because... The Maltese Falcon came out in October 1941, and that was just a couple months before Pearl Harbor, and it just so happens that we are in mid-December right now, and we did have visions of releasing this particular episode right alongside Pearl Harbor Remembrance Day, which is December 7th here in the U.S., But uh, Life Happens. We missed it by a week or so, uh, but wanted to get it out nonetheless. And we have certainly touched on the massive impact that World War II had on film noir and on the film industry very briefly in previous episodes. But that's really going to be the focus of attention today. We're going to set the stage. We're going to review the emergence of film noir and its relation chronologically to the attack on Pearl Harbor. Just do that very briefly as we've already taken a little bit more of a deep dive on that. And then we're going to look at how film noir developed in its early years alongside World War II. We'll touch on some of the important films that were made and released during the years of World War II. We'll talk about big milestones in the war in the relation to those films, we'll talk about how the film industry in general changed, particularly in the U.S. where so much of everybody's lives was being directed towards the war effort and the film industry and movies in general were no exception to that rule. We'll talk about the changing public sentiment in America that may or may not have helped influence film noir's early year progression. And we will finish up by talking about the state of the classic era as World War II concludes and give a sneak peek into some of the geopolitical or world events that would come after World War II that also had an enormous influence on the classic era of film noir. And I would just say before getting into the discussion, just want to acknowledge that This whole discussion and review of World War II events and their overlap with the emergence of film noir, everything is really, for this episode, from a U.S. perspective. And that's largely because at this point, film noir is still very much an American thing. Now, it Absolutely had influences from many different places, but it did come together in Hollywood, in the United States, and especially because of World War II, when film distribution internationally was disrupted, it was definitely uh, centered again, even more so in the U.S. But at this point, it hadn't gone to Britain yet. It hadn't gone to Japan, yet eventually film noir would reach all the way across the globe to every country's cinema, to some extent, I think you could argue. But at this point, it was definitely still uh, based in the United States, and most of the early development that we're going to talk about is relative to the United States public, who is seeing... World War II events and seeing film noir emerge and develop in these first few years at the same time, where no other country really had that opportunity from 1942 to 1945. And with that, we will get right into it. So in episode two, we talked a lot about 1940 and 1941 and the cinematic innovations, particularly the filmmakers and the films that came out in those two years that helped to contribute to and kickstart what we now call the classic era of film noir. We talked about films like The Grapes of Wrath, Stranger on the Third Floor, Long Voyage Home, Citizen Kane, Maltese Falcon, I Wake Up Screaming, other films that we didn't even have a chance to talk about, like High Sierra that were also contributors. But important to remember, and especially in relation to this discussion, is that while all those films were being created and released in the United States, 1940-1941, World War II had been going on in Europe. The United States was not yet involved, but on September 1st, 1939, Germany invaded Poland, and Brit- Britain and France declared war on Germany very soon after, and that conflict was well underway while those films were going on. And the release of the Maltese Falcon in October of 1941 is less than two months before the United States would enter into the war itself. So December 7th, 1941, the attack on Pearl Harbor, which prompted the U.S.'s official entrance into World War II, and we have this new innovation in film, really, that had been built upon for a few years, and all of a sudden, it would take a backseat to something far, far more important, which was gripping the world. And just to take a quick sidestep, it's certainly important to mention that while we're beginning this discussion, 1940, 1941, and into 1942, the lead-up to World War II particularly the rise of the Nazi party in Germany, had earlier influences on film noir because that was largely the reason for so many German directors and filmmakers emigrating to the United States and to Hollywood in particular and bringing along those expressionistic techniques that would end up laying dormant a little bit for the 1930s for the most part, but obviously would become a huge tenant and characteristic of the Noir style that emerges in the early 40s. So on a related note to the emigration because of the Nazi party, I think it's important to note that up until 1939, really, the moguls and the leaders in Hollywood were very very cautious of releasing any movies that were attacking Nazism. And part of that was, may have been fear. Part of that was certainly the fact that part of their business was international film distribution, and they had big markets in Germany and did not want to lose that business. There was even an understanding and under-the-table agreement amongst the studio heads to try to limit the extent to which Jewish people were credited in films, portrayed in films, as to not upset the Nazi party, as it was known at that time that their discrimination and persecution of Jewish peoples in Europe had begun. But that kind of avoidance and silence to bring up the topic really ended in 1939 when the movie Confessions of a Nazi Spy was released and then certainly was completely disregarded in the following year in 1940 when Charlie Chaplin released The Great Dictator. So in the late 20s and 1930s, you have a lot of European filmmakers who have emigrated to Hollywood, but at the same time you have Hollywood that under direction of the studio heads and the moguls, is actively sidestepping the problems that were going on in Europe. And then in into 1939, they had still remained silent. But as 1939 comes along and World War II does break out in Europe, Confessions of a Nazi Spy is released, Great is released the next year, and that kind of opens the floodgates in terms of what Hollywood films are willing to portray in relation to the conflict in Europe, and eventually it would make a complete reversal because once the United States was involved in World War II, many of the people in the film industry were directly engaged in the war effort, whether it was the Hollywood Canteen or actors and actresses trying to raise money by selling war bonds, or some of the directors even who went to the armed forces to make documentaries, Uh, somebody like Frank Capra, for instance. Um, So it really made a move from not saying anything to talking about it in films to being completely immersed in the war effort along with the rest of the United States at the time. Although an important note for 1939 and 1940, in addition to Hollywood finally showing some of these issues in their narrative feature films, you have movie theaters in general, which were people's way of seeing what was going on in 1939 and 1940. There was no television, there were there was radio, but if you were in terms of seeing visuals of what the conflict looked like in Europe in 1939 and 1940, that was getting to the people of the United States through movie theaters and through newsreels. So they're seeing these awful horrors that are happening in real life in the, in Europe. And you're also seeing a lot of propaganda films that are demonizing the enemy and Right around then, you have Hollywood starting to bring these issues into feature-length films, and collectively, much of the American public is beginning to realize that this conflict is not going away, and there is an increasing chance that the United States could end up immersed in it. And thus, right after The Maltese Falcon is released in October of 1941, We go ahead to December 7th, 1941, and the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor that killed 2,403 Americans. The damage was so severe that the War Department kept many of the details secret. And it was the next day that FDR gave his speech and asked Congress for a declaration of war. And the United States knew that war was finally there for them, too. And to try to give us the best side-by-side look of the events of World War II and the events of Film Noir's early development in the first few years after it had started— The plan is to kind of go through 1942 through 1945 and talk about the films and talk about the major events. Big um, preface here that I am certainly not a World War II historian, although it is one of the topics that I do enjoy uh, learning about very much. I was lucky enough to take a course on it in school and... Also lucky enough to watch Ken Burns' documentary, The War, all about World War II, and that is where so much of the event information that I'm going to tell is coming from, um, is taking notes from, from that marvelous documentary that Ken Burns put out. So alongside the war events, we're going to be talking about the films from 1942 through 1945 that are... Sometimes included in the film noir canon. Now, I have not seen every single one of these films, but from many reference sources, particularly the works of Eddie Muller, Alan Silver, James Orsini Foster Hirsch, being able to kind of collectively bring together many of the films that are referred to in that time period as early film noir. So we kind of put those side by side, work through those few years, and then we'll end up wrapping up with the end of World War II. And to begin, we could probably just start by saying that the early 1942 news for the United States and the Allies was almost all bad. So the Germans had reached Leningrad and the outskirts of Moscow by early 1942. Japan had taken Singapore, Malaya, Borneo, Burma, Hong Kong, Macon, Tarawa and Wake Island in the Pacific theater. In January of 1942 alone, there were 25 U S tankers sunk by German U boats in the Atlantic. And if we look at the first six months of 1942, there were a total of 230 allied ships that had been sunk and that had resulted in ship supplies washing up on U S beaches and beaches turning black with oil. So, bad news, and then showing up right on the shores of the United States was this reminder of how things were going very poorly in the beginning half of 1942. And in addition, we have Life magazine that starts to publish pictures of what is going on in Poland, in particular the terrible treatment of the Jewish population in the Polish ghettos. And those really appalling pictures were printed. They were right there in Life Magazine, and the United States public was able to see that firsthand and really get a glimpse into some of the horrors that were starting to commence in Europe. Then on April 9th in the Philippines, the U.S. Army surrenders at Bataan. And 78,000 American Filipino troops are sent north for camp internment in what was later dubbed the Bataan Death March. And less than a month after that, the last stronghold of the United States in the Philippines fell to the Japanese, and that happened on May 6th. However, before May 6th, we do have a film noir that we like to talk about. It was... Obviously, everything was going very badly in the war effort, but we did have our first key noir that we want to talk about that came out in April of 1942, and that was This Gun for Hire. So that was directed by Frank Tuttle, and it was Alan Ladd's real breakout role. So I've also heard of Alan Ladd and Veronica Lake. Uh, They made many films together. This was the first of the films that they worked together on. It, um, if you're really, really interested in going to see it, uh, and you're a noir diehard, um, certainly it you can find it and you can um, get a glimpse of what this film was like. There's some stylistic elements to it. Um, there's possible homage scene to um, Fritz Lang's 1931 classic M in there as well uh but it would not be the first film from 1942 i would recommend for people just getting started with noir but it is important though because like the maltese falcon like i wake up screaming of late 1941 there are a few other films in there in that that um that's a short span of late 1941, early 1942. There was Among the Living, there was the Shanghai Gesture, there was Fly by Night. But the key was that these dark overtones were in these films. And alongside the terrible, horrible real life events that were going on, it was certainly noticeable because for the most part, films during the war years, I haven't spoken about this yet, but this is very important, is that films during 1942 through 1945 were largely an escape for U.S. citizens. So there was incredible anxiety over what was going on, obviously. There were worries about loved ones. There was the uncertainty of which way this massive conflict would end up going and people were going to work, contributing to the war effort and really their their big getaway was getting to the movie theater and seeing these kind of escape films where they could for an hour and a half, two hours, put all that, you know, really heavy um, worry aside and just get immersed into a film. So for the most part, they were not films filled with pessimism or cynicism or seedy characters or dangerous places. They were things more like Preston Sturge's comedies, for instance, or musicals or something that could uplift the audience. But We have certainly mentioned in the past that film noir in general was the exact opposite of this. Film noir was not really concerned with uplifting the audience. And that's why these few films in late 1941, early 1942, along with the awful real-life events that were going on, these films are very acutely but infrequently keeping that dark undertone going in narrative-length feature films. So April 24th, 1942, is the premiere for This Gun for Hire with Alan Ladd and Veronica Lake. It would be another five months before September 8th, 1942, when The Glass Key would be released. And that is another Alan Ladd, Veronica Lake film, this time directed by Stuart Heisler. And it actually came from another Dashiell Hammett story, So if we rewind, Dashiell Hammett was the author of The Maltese Falcon when it came out in serial form and novel form before it was made into a film. He also wrote The Glass Key, which was another one of his great hard-boiled crime stories. And the film version of The Glass Key that comes out in early September 1942 is really really an excellent film. It's a solid noir. It has great backstory in terms of its hard-boiled crime literature roots. It has good character development. There's a lot of noir stylistics to it. Both Alan Ladd and Veronica Lake are excellent in it. One thing to note is that it does have a bit of an atypical noir ending, but uh, in order not to give any spoilers away on this, we will not go any further than that. But definitely one to go watch if you are interested in early 1940s noir. And one more film to talk about to round out 1942 is The Oxbow Incident. Now, that was directed by William A. Wellman, and it is included in the film noir encyclopedia that is edited slash curated by Silver, Ward, Orsini, Porfirio an outstanding reference book to have on your shelves if you are very much into noir and want to start going through some of the lesser known films especially. Uh, But The Oxbow Incident is, I think, very important to note because it was one of the earliest examples, I believe, of a hybrid where the noir style was really transposed onto an established genre. So it's a western but it is very much in the noir vein. It's very much bringing a social message to light in the story, and it's a very harsh story that is full of cynicism and moral ambiguity and guilt. And it is definitely one to watch to see how early the noir style and message background starts to creep into other kinds of films. And again, that came out in December 1942. And just to catch up in terms of World War II, by the end of 1942, there were U.S. troops in northern Africa. The Soviet troops had stopped German advances at Stalingrad. So there were some bits of turning for the Allied forces. The battle for Guadalcanal, which had happened in August, or at least started in August, which is the first American offensive of the war. It ended up going into February of 1943, but you can see a little bit of a turn in the way of an offensive and stopping some of the Axis forces. So the general American public who is monitoring war progress through newsreels and the movie theaters and through newspapers gets to see a little bit of a turn in favor of the Allied forces towards the end of 1942, or at least stopping the bleeding, so to speak, of the bad news that had been coming for most of the year prior to. So, 1943 comes around, and if it hadn't been really solidified to this point, it certainly is at the beginning of 1943, where the national purpose of the United States is all about winning the war. Everybody is behind the war effort. And the Soviet army is pushing back on the Eastern front of Germany. They still control most of Western Europe, but there is a little bit of a pushback there. And newsreels in January are even showing the FDR and Churchill meeting in Casablanca. And the British and U.S. forces were making more progress in Northern Africa, approaching the Axis stronghold in Europe from the South. So in January 1943, that's where we're at with the war. And we have two noir films that come out. The first is Journey into Fear. And the second, which we're going to take a second and discuss very briefly, deserves far more discussion than giving it at the moment, but that is Shadow of a Doubt directed by Alfred Hitchcock. Now, Alfred Hitchcock is a little interesting to discuss in relation to film noir. I think noir expert Foster Hirsch puts it very well in his book, The Dark Side of the Screen, which is an outstanding noir book for anybody that is interested. But he talks about Hitchcock kind of not fitting into any of the broader buckets of either German emigre directors who were making noirs or American directors that were making noirs. But at the same time, so much of Hitchcock's method of filmmaking really crosses over into noir territory. But at the same time, it almost kind of stands alone in its own silo right alongside film noir. So... Definitely an interesting discussion I hope we can have in the future, but as far as this goes, many of Hitchcock's films are absolutely listed in classic film noir, and Shadow of a Doubt is definitely in that list. And again, this is a very, 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 very brief description and not giving away any spoilers, but Shadow of a Doubt is a deeply psychological film. And it is an early glimpse into how noir will interplay with the theme of human psychotherapy and psychology later on, especially. So visually, I would say it's a little less stylistically noir. Um, But definitely, thematically, uh, Shadow of a Doubt is right in there. And obviously, it's a great film and would highly recommend anybody who wants to see it. But that was the big one that came out in January of 1943, along with Journey into Fear. Then we have a little bit of a gap where for... The majority of 1943, there wasn't a lot of noir that was coming out. There were three films that came out first in August and then a couple more in December. The Fallen Sparrow, Calling Dr. Death, and Whispering Footsteps. I have not been able to track any of those down, so I can't comment on them. would love to watch them eventually, uh, but just haven't got to it yet. Um But yeah, it was not a lot, just kind of like 1942, not a lot of noirs that were coming out in these war years when you compare it to the years after the war, 46, 47, 48, 49, where dozens were being released every year. But as far as the war goes, 1943 was, I think you could say, largely where the people at home in the United States started to collectively move into the war effort. So there was salvaging supplies for for production. Factories were being repurposed to make war supplies. Women were moving into the workforce, and many Americans were being asked to simply do without things that they had been accustomed to so that it could be saved for the effort. By the summer of 1943, the last Axis forces had surrendered in northern Africa, and Sicily was taken by the Allied forces. And in early September, Italian leader Benito Mussolini was actually deposed in Rome, and new leaders were elected, and they surrendered and effectively switched sides from the Axis to the Allied side and declared war on Germany. So, you have Allied forces that are moving into mainland Italy, and at the same time, German forces are being sent to their occupied stations in Italy to reinforce and prevent the Allied invasion of that southern front. And while this is going on, the fighting in the Pacific Theater is certainly continuing. And on September 20th, 1943, we have an important uh event where it was the first time that Life Magazine or any publication or newsreel for that matter, they ended up publishing a photo of three deceased American soldiers on the beach of New Guinea. And it was just another reminder to Americans who were everybody in every town of the country who was feeling the effects of the war that these things were happening to American soldiers, and the violence and horror of war is definitely real. And it wouldn't be much longer before the battle for Tarawa in the Gilbert Islands commenced in the Pacific Theater, which was an especially brutal battle for U.S. forces. And actually, the newsreels Originally depicted everything going as planned at Tarawa, but that decision was later reversed, and they ended up producing a film about the battle and they called it With the Marines at Tarawa. And that was ordered by Franklin Delano Roosevelt to be shown at American movie theaters so that the American public could see what the U.S. forces were really fighting. So, in pretty short time, it goes from the first publicized picture of dead American soldiers to an actual documentary showing actual brutal war footage. And as you could expect, the larger American public was just simply devastated watching this film, seeing what was actually happening and unfolding for the U.S. forces and the people of the Pacific Theater. And thus, by the end of 1943, we have progress in Europe, progress in the Pacific theater. But most notably, we have the American public that is getting to see more and more of the reality of what is going on. And with that, we also have a few specific noir movies that are released that keep that somber tone going that matches the, the mood that everybody was feeling based off of what was happening in the real world. And that gets us into 1944, which was an absolute breakout for film noir and certainly had plenty of pivotal events in the war as well. In early 1944, we have The Lodger that came out. We also have Phantom Lady, Voice in the Wind. And in April of 1944, we have Double Indemnity. And not to... Fast forward past Phantom Lady, that is absolutely an excellent noir. Would highly recommend anybody see that if you're interested. Uh, But Double Indemnity that came out in April of 44 was really the big one. I think it was Paul Schrader in his essay on film noir that said that the real heart of film noir while well, the classic era stretched from the early forties to the late fifties, I believe he said it exactly at Maltese Falcon 2, Touch of Evil in nineteen fifty eight, but he said that the real sweet spot started with Double Indemnity in nineteen forty-four and actually concluded with another Billy Wilder film. Billy Wilder was the director of Double Indemnity, but he also directed Sunset Boulevard, which was released in nineteen fifty and According to Paul Schrader's article slash essay on film noir, which is really one of the most important and cited works on film noir history, that is really the heart or the sweet spot of film noir. 1944, starting with Double Indemnity to 1950 and ending with Sunset Boulevard. And Double Indemnity is, I don't think anyone would argue is one of the most essential of all film noirs. It is probably the first film that if you were to ask and wonder about what is film noir or need an example of what a film noir is, I would point you to Double Indemnity. I would say that is the first one to go watch, and that will give you the best sense of what you're going to find in film noir. Obviously, all these things we're talking about on the podcast, any any written stuff, it's just simply words until you actually see it um, and get that feeling of what noir really is. Um, you, you can't really fully grasp it, but that is the one that I would point to to say if you want the quickest understanding of what the, gets at the heart of film noir, personally, I would recommend going to Double Indemnity. And it was also one of the big films that prompted French critics to first talk about the American film noirs when they were seeing 1944 films like Double Indemnity, Laura, The Woman in the Window, Murder, My Sweet. Those were the ones that uh, really prompted the examination of it in 1946. But also after Double Indemnity is released in April... You have The Ministry of Fear that is released, directed by Fritz Lang. You have The Mask of Demetrios, which is released in June. Then Laura is coming out in October. Woman in the Window also comes out in October. And Murder, My Sweet, directed by Edward Dimitrik, comes out just before the holidays in mid-December of 1944. Would highly recommend all of those. There are some a little bit lesser known ones. Christmas Holiday, When Strangers Marry, Guest in the House, Dangerous Passage, The Suspect. Um, But certainly uh, a very robust year for 1944 when you compare it to 1942 and 43 when you maybe only have five, six, seven uh, noirs coming out. You have quite a few heavy hitters and over a dozen that are released in 1944. And alongside all those real big impact film noirs that were a little bit more than 42 and 43, where there were a couple that were kind of maintaining what was going on, you have you know a real influx of big, high-budget noirs that were making a public splash and bringing that mood and sensibility more into mainstream cinema to go along with everything that was happening with the war. And speaking of the war, 1944 was certainly a year of important milestones for World War II as well. In the beginning of 1944, we have Allied forces slowly making their way northward through Italy. And, and by June 4th, 1944, you have Allied forces marching through Rome. You also have The Red Army of the Soviet Union had driven German forces from Ukraine and had even started into Poland. Also, the D-Day invasion plan was fully set and would end up happening two days later on June 6th, 1944, when 176,000 troops from Britain, Canada, and the United States moved across the English Channel and landed on the beaches of Normandy in France. So progress on the southern side of Europe, on the eastern side, and landing on the western front in France as well to work towards the German stronghold. And in the Pacific, it was a little bit slower. The U.S. forces were still continuing to move forward. They were at the Mariana Islands of Guam, Tiananmen, and Saipan. By this time, the battle for Saipan in particular was especially brutal. There was also an enormous aircraft battle that happened just offshore, but ultimately the U.S. forces were successful there and the Japanese fleet had retreated. And so by July of 1944, you have hundreds of thousands of troops ashore in France And you have the Red Army, who had taken Minsk and was causing big losses for Axis forces on the Eastern Front, so a lot of progress being made in very short time. Northwest France was soon secured by early August, and then by late August, Paris was liberated after four full years of German occupation. And in September, the Third Army, led by General Patton, who was leading American, British, and Canadian troops, had freed Most of France, Belgium, and parts of the Netherlands as well. Soviet troops had forces back into Latvia, Lithuania, and Poland too. So more and more progress. Allied troops even crossed over into Germany as early as September 11th, 1944, although it would be several more months of failed attempts to make significant progress into Germany before the famous Battle of the Bulge when German forces busted through the Allied Front in December of '44, in their last-ditch counterattack to essentially make or break the war in Europe. But by Christmas 1944, the German army had been stopped by U.S. forces, and within another month into early 1945, all the land that was lost from the Battle of the Bulge push on the Axis side had been regained by the Allied side. So, moving through that incredibly quickly, obviously not doing it anywhere near the justice it needs, but in order to not have this episode last for 10 hours or something along those lines, just trying to give a quick review of what happened in the war in 1944 alongside those really important noir films namely high-budget, impactful noir films that came out in 1944 as well. And as we move into 1945, the year that the war would ultimately end on both fronts in Europe and the Pacific Theater, we have in follow-up to the big 1944 year, we have several more noirs that come out. I think you could safely say, for the most part, they're a little bit less known, Um, We have Hangover Square, Strange Illusion, Escape in the Fog, Two O'Clock Courage, Conflict, Lady Confesses, Bewitched. Um, I wish I could say I've seen them all, have not, haven't been able to track some of them down, but certainly continuing on in the tradition of 1944 and years prior, albeit films that, if we look back now, are a little bit less high profile. And to return and finish up the Major events of the war in 1945, by early February, Manila in the Philippines had been liberated, and Americans at home were able to see footage of the Big Three meeting at Yalta, FDR, Churchill, and Stalin, in their meeting, which would end up dividing Germany into separate zones, something that would be uh, very pertinent to the Cold War and We will certainly talk about the Cold War and that relation to film noir later, but also in the newsreels, they saw footage of American planes starting to bomb Tokyo, and later in February came the famous battle for Iwo Jima, which resulted in enormous number of casualties on both sides, followed by the even larger battle for the island of Okinawa, which was even deadlier unfortunately. And on the European side, both the Soviet troops from the Eastern Front and the American, Canadian, and British troops from the Western Front were closing in on Berlin. And then another blow to the U.S. public as they saw Franklin Roosevelt die on April 12, 1945. Obviously, an extremely popular president to have been elected four times. So another real gut punch of reality for people at home. But it would end up only being a couple more weeks before American and Soviet forces would meet along the El River, begin assaulting Berlin, and the Soviets would overtake the Reichstag and Hitler would commit suicide, followed a couple weeks later by the official surrender of Germany and VE Day on May 8th, 1945. The war in Europe was over. But of course, the war against Japan was still going on, and it would be a couple more months. But under direction of the new commander-in-chief, Harry Truman, the atomic bombs were dropped on the mainland country of Japan, cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Um, and I'm sure everybody is probably familiar with that if you have seen the new Christopher Nolan movie, Oppenheimer. Um, kind of a coincidence to be doing this episode about World War II so close to the release of such a massively successful epic that was released in 2023. But that does get us to the end of our World War II timeline, and I know we had to really give that a 10,000-foot view and not get into anything too deeply in order to keep this to a reasonable time length. And we certainly didn't get to talk about all of the films in depth. We really only mentioned them. But the point of the episode was really to highlight that the early years of the classic era of film noir overlapped so heavily with the major events of World War II. And that the horrors and atrocities of that war which U.S. citizens were seeing via newsreels in movie theaters, was going on alongside so many of these dark, fictional noir movies that were in many ways mirroring a very pessimistic outlook on life that many people were getting from real-life events. And while it's extremely hard to say definitively that the emotional effects of the terrible war on the general US movie going public are what caused filmmakers to collectively continue this shift toward darker noir movies. It is clear that the correlation and the, the time overlap was there. And that is so much of the reason why film noir and World War II are often talked about together. And World War II is mentioned as an influence of film noir. And I think it really gets at, there's a, a really interesting book about German Expressionism. It's actually called From Caligari to Hitler, and it's by Siegfried Krakauer. And that book is all about the darker German Expressionism films that were coming out after World War One concluded in Germany, when the public sentiment of the German people was so devastated following World War One, you have films that are, and this is the argument, you have films that are mirroring the overall mentality of the nation's people. And I think for us, one piece of that does make quite a bit of sense in the fact that the movie industries are largely built on commerce. They are in the business of making money. And if you are creating movies that are relating or resonating to the audience and the psychological state or the the mental position that they are in, it certainly would help sell tickets if they enjoy having that reflected back in the movies that they're watching and would eventually make them more money. So that's what people are looking for and they are buying more tickets. It stands to reason that collectively there would be a shift towards making more of those films and ultimately trying to boost sales. And before we wrap up the episode, just want to touch on two quick things. Um, one is the fact that not only was this timely correlation going on between the events of World War II and the early development of film noir. But World War II also left a lasting stamp on film noir in later years via the World War II veteran character. Now, there are many famous noir pictures that have a World War II veteran. Many of the times they have PTSD or other psychological effects from their time at war. And those characters often become that direct link between the darkness of World War II and what we are seeing in noir pictures. And lastly, as promised, a little quick sneak peek because World War II was not the only major world or geopolitical event that affected film noir. The other two ones that we definitely want to talk about in the future are the Cold War, which you know started up very soon after the end of World War II, how that affected the film noir cycle, and also the anti-communist hysteria, the HUAC proceedings, the McCarthyism era, how that also changed the trajectory and the development of film noir in later years. And I think that'll about do it. Um, Hope you enjoyed the discussion. Hope it was a, a good general primer in terms of The intersection between World War II and film noir. Uh, We went through the World War II years, gave a brief history of the major events, but also how the events of the war were getting back to the American public via newsreels and movie theaters for the most part, and the correlation between that and the continued darkening and building upon of the classic era of film noir that had started in 1940-1941. If you are enjoying the podcast and looking to help us out, you can hop on over to shadowsofnoir.com, and we have a Patreon page as well that's listed in the show notes. Uh, Referrals are still a great way to get the word going. Uh, At this point, we're only a few episodes in, so that certainly helps, along with ratings and reviews, on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We are in the process of setting up a letterboxed page, so stay tuned for that in the future. And I hope you will join us for our next episode, uh, considering the time of year, and it's going to be coming out right around the holidays. In 2023, we are going to be talking about It's a Wonderful Life and the 15-or-so-minute noir segment of It's a Wonderful Life and what that does for the film, and why it is such a great representation of the power of film noir. So, thanks once again for listening. Hope you enjoyed it. Hope you come back next time. And until then, take care.